This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie, removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? Hello, welcome to The Real Thing. I'm your host, Joe Lawrence. Ready to podcast, talk about some films and such. The Real Thing is an extension of Bergen Film Club or Bergen Film Society in Bergen, Norway, where I talk all about the program, why we choose the films that we choose, why they're cool, why you should watch them, why you should come visit. Yeah. It's been a very busy stressful time for a lot of us at Bergen Film Club. We've just finished with Bergen International Film Festival, or BIF, as I'm going to refer to it as. But overall, it was a really amazing experience to... I got to work as a projectionist, which was awesome, and very grateful for the opportunity to work and see some amazing films. Today we're doing something a little bit different, actually. Uh, We're talking about a director just overall the story of a director and how he came to be. I can't, I'm enjoying these sort of like historical episodes, so we're going to be doing that again. But before we start, uh, I'm going to talk about the films that I saw at Biff, so sort of like a mini Biff recap. So Biff has a wonderful array and collection of fiction and non-fiction documentaries, pre-premieres, just anything that you want. Uh, and I saw a lot of great fiction and I saw a lot of great documentaries as well so I just wanted to highlight what I saw and encourage you to come see it when it comes out in cinemas which I'm pretty sure will be soon for a lot of them. Uh, I'm going to start with documentaries. My favorite documentary that I saw was called Naomi Lewand which is directed by Edward Lovelace. He follows the story of Lewand who is this deaf child who is uh seeking asylum from the war in the Middle East with his family and they moved to the UK. And before this, he has never been able to communicate with his family because none of them can sign. And it's just a story of him kind of acclimating and learning his trauma and learning how to communicate and like choosing what's best for him and sort of changing the whole perspective of his entire family. It was really powerful, so moving and beautiful and amazingly made so yeah, if you can see that one, definitely go for it and big up Edward Lovelace because it was a just a perfectly crafted, wonderful documentary. It was so, so good. In the same vein, I saw a documentary called Is There Anybody Out There by Ella Glendening. Um, I read like the bio. While navigating daily discrimination, a filmmaker who inhabits and loves her unusual body searches the world for her, for another person just like her and explores what it takes to love oneself fiercely despite the pervasiveness of ableism. It was just like, it was a view of disability in a way that I had like never really seen it discussed before and the conversations that she was having with other people in her life was so frank. And it was kind of like acknowledging and beyond the disability. So, and just like how 
I, I think I just had never really had that perspective before that it highlights kind of young children going through like years and years of terrible, uh, well, not terrible, but just very heavy and life-altering surgeries when they're just children. And she's kind of highlighting, you know, like if there is nothing wrong with them, apart from that they look different, then is there a need to do this? Uh, and like a quote from her mom in the episode, in the in the documentary was, "If it ain't broke, don't fix it." And yeah, it was just really, really powerful and such a unique, amazing look into this life and kind of highlight the ableism that we all kind of inherently adhere to. So yeah, is there anybody out there? And name me Lawant, definitely two documentaries that I can really push. I'm going to go for three fiction films, starting with Samsara. So it uh, is a Buddhist cycle of death and reincarnation and starts from the temples of, La- of Laos alongside with a teenage monk we will accompany a soul as it transits from one body to another through the bardo. The words of the Tibetan Book of the Dead will be our guide to avoid getting lost in the afterlife, a luminous and sonorous journey that will lead us to reincarnate on the beaches of Zanzibar where women work in seaweed farms. It just takes you on this journey of this old woman dying and then being reborn. But the way that you experience the kind of the travel through the intermediate world is that you close your eyes and you just let the light and the sound kind of take you on the journey and you listen to the words and the chants and this sort of like meditative state. It was so fucking cool. So that was, it's just, it's one of the most amazing, unique experiences that I've had in a cinema. So yeah, loved it. Definitely see of that if you can. Secondly, the new Todd Haynes gig, May, December, starring Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Ooh, I could rave about this film. Firstly, I just have to say uh, that the content of this is, is pretty gross and grim, but the acting from all people included, especially Natalie Portman, was incredible. She gives such an amazing performance, which is like, I think, very special to say for her because... She is always killing it, right? So if I'm like ex- uh, exceptionally saying something, then she really, really was very good in this. But this follows basically Julian Moore's character, grooms and has the baby of a 12-year-old. And then 20 or so years later, Natalie Portman is playing Julian Moore in a movie. Or Julian Moore's character. So it's basically Natalie Portman's uh, actress character becoming kind of obsessed with their life and trying to learn about them and how this impacted and who this like extremely flawed kind of terrible woman is who believes that she kind of didn't do anything wrong. It was such a interesting, like competitive, uncomfortable movie, but it was so good and so like it was tantalizing to watch. It was so it was like fun in the worst way. Um, but love that. And lastly. I am rev- gonna suggest Poor Things, the new Yorgos Lanthimos film. I recommended the book for this a f- couple episodes ago, and I was nervous for the film because I heard sort of mixed things. But when I tell you that this film was fucking incredible, you have to see it. Emma Stone was an absolute a revelation in this, uh, and everyone surprised me with their. The dialogue was great, the, and the acting was phenomenal, and the set design and the mood of it was just so interesting and 
matched perfectly all the themes that I would kind of imagine it as I was reading. Bella Baxter, who is the lead character, is sort of this, like, Frankenstein-type character. Emma Stone just played her kind of perfectly, and Bella Baxter is kind of my favourite literary character, I would say. I loved getting to know her in the book. So, it was just, oh, I just loved it. I just loved, loved it. It was just so fun, and it kind of, it dropped some things from the book, but then where it took up other places, it felt satisfying in that way, so... I had no hesitation with it, and I just, it was just divine. It was so much fun, and yeah. But yeah, overall, Biff was so great. I got to see a lot of really special films. Perfect Days, for example, The Zone of Interest, How to Have Sex, Queendom, Riddle of Fire. That was so much fun, like a kid adventure. Really special, shot on 16mm, beautiful film, so yeah. I imagine all of those will be coming to a cinema near you soon, so definitely wait out to see them. Yes. Nonetheless, today we are going to be talking about the director, Yasujiro Ozu. So, the sources that I'm using today are Wikipedia and a 2003 article from Senses of Cinema written by Nick Wrigley, which I'm pulling a lot from because it's uh, very perfectly researched and really encapsulates a lot about this uh, very interesting man and his filmography. So, let's get into it. So, for those of you who don't know, the films of Yasujiro Ozu examine the basic struggles that we all face in life, cycles of birth, death, transition from childhood to adulthood, and the tension between tradition and modernity. The titles often emphasize the changing of seasons, a symbolic backdrop for the evolving transitions of human experience. Seen together, Ozu's oeuvre amounts to one of the most profound visions of family life in history of cinema. Ozu's career falls loosely into two halves, divided by the Second World War. His breezier earlier works are unafraid to acknowledge the influence of Hollywood melodramas or to flirt with the farce, such films contrast greatly with his later masterpieces, which portray a uniquely comp- contemplative style so rigorously simplistic that it renounces almost all known film grammar. So let's start with his background. Who was he? So he was born on December 12th in 1903 in Tokyo. He and his two older brothers were educated in the countryside in Matsuzaka, whilst his father and uh, sold fertilizer in Tokyo. When he was 13, he began middle school at Uji Yamada and was an unruly pupil who loved mischief, fighting, keeping photos of uh, the actress Pearl White, the very famous actress of the time, on his desk, and drinking alcohol. Drinking was a habit that he gained in early life and one that he was to keep. Ozu developed a love of film during his early days of school truancy, but his fascination began whilst he saw uh, Matsunosuke, his historical spectacular at the Adegoza Cinema in Matsuzaka. He also very interestingly got kicked out of school for sending a love letter to a boy. Despite having very few qualifications following his school run, he secured a position as an assistant teacher in a small mountain village some distance from Matsuzaka, a post for which a college uh, diploma was not needed. Little has been written or spoken about Ozu's time teaching in this community except that this is known when he drank almost continually. Friends came to visit him and stayed for extended drinking sessions for months on end. 
Eventually, his father had to wire him money to pay off his drinking debts, and Ozu went back to Tokyo, after a decade away, to live with his family. Ozu's uncle, aware of his nephew's love for film, introduced him to Tehiro Tsutsumi, then manager of Shochiku. Not long after, Ozu began working for the great studio, against his father's wishes, as an assistant cameraman. It may be thought nowadays that Ozu more than landed on his feet when he began to work in movies. However, in 1923, the Japanese movies were not considered respectable or proper employment, and there was uh, consequently a shortage of enthusiastic, bright young men involved in the production. Even Ozu's father initially refused his son's wish to work in the movies and had to be persuaded otherwise by his uncle. Ozu's work as assistant cameraman involved pure physical labor, lifting and moving equipment at Chujiko's Tokyo Studios in Kamada. After becoming assistant director to Tadamoto Okubo, it took less than a year for Ozu to put his first script forward for filming. It was in fact his second script of The Sword of Penitence that became his first film as director and only period piece in 1927. Ozu was called, upon, uh, called up into the army reserves before shooting was complete, and upon seeing the film afterwards stated that he would rather not call it his own. No negative prints or script exists for the Sword of Penitence, and sadly only 36 out of, 40, uh, out of 54 of Ozu films still exist to this day. So despite having a rather tumultuous beginning to his life, which evolved alcoholism from the age of 13, his career began with an early fondness for American films, and he later told Donald Ritchie that he particularly liked those of Ernst Lubitsch. However, in other conversations, Ozu seemed unwilling to admit to influence. He did see large numbers of Japanese films after joining Shuchiku in order to study his senior's techniques and famously said, I formulate my own directing style in my own head, proceeding without any unnecessary imitation of others. For me, there was no such thing as a teacher. I've re- I relied entirely on my own strength. Audi Bock points out that it's difficult to look for parallels between Ozu's life and his films. College, office, and marital life, none of which Ozu experienced, are subjects of many of his films. Army life never appears, and provincial life such as he lived with his mother in Matsuzaka only rarely. She concludes that Ozu must have approached film as an art of fiction from which realism was to be distilled. Quote, His inspiration came from outside of his own life, from his mind and the lives of others observed to perfection with that mind. Days of Youth in 1929 is Ozu's earliest extant picture, which means that it is still available to see, though not especially typical and preceded by seven others, now lost, as it is said on ski slopes. A variant on the then popular comedies depicting students at work and play, in this film two students endeavour to pass their exams and impress the girl to whom they both have taken a fancy. Stylistically, it is rife with close-ups, fade-outs and tracking shots, all of which Ozu was delayed to leave behind in his future works. Three years later came what is generally recognised as Ozu's first major film, I Was Born, But, in 1932. This movie comedy drama was a great success in Japan both critically and financially. One of cinema's finest works about children. The film begins as a riotous Keaton-esque comedy but quickly darkens as it portrays a classic confrontation between the innocence of childhood and the hypocrisy of adults. A tracking shot of, of a line exercising schoolchildren cuts to a tracking line of a line of office workers yawning at their desks. Using a technique he would later discard, Ozu here effectively associates school and office work as regimentary, and the transition between the two as inevitable. Ozu liked I Was Born But, so much he had to remake it as Good Morning in 1959. 
In the 1930s, Ozu's protagonists were all lower middle class ordinary folk. During this time in Japan, the Shomen Geki, a drama about people like you and me, was highly regarded for its honesty and relevance. Poverty was the bane of these characters' lives, along with class differences, but as soon as the 1930s, Ozu's message of acceptance was already clear. The restrained, lyrical work of Story of Floating Weeds in 1934 is the story of a leader of a small group of travelling players who returns to a small town and meets his son, the product of an earlier affair. Ozu transforms the slightly melodramatic tale into an atmospheric and intense study. Donald Richias called this film, quote, the first of those eight real universes which everything takes on the consistency greater than life, in short, work of art. Beautifully put. Its depiction of life on the boards, the pantomime dog who misses his cue, bowls to catch raindrops through the leaking roofs, and the quick cigarettes between exit and entrances is classic Ozu. He would later remake the film in colour as Floating Weeds. A year later, Ozu pursued his examination of socio-economic conditions by showing the depression hit Japan in an inn in Tokyo in 1935, one of Ozu's most moving pictures. A father and his young sons trudge through the back streets of Tokyo, vainly seeking work, and with few possessions must choose between food and shelter. In many ways, it anticipates the neorealism of Desikas the Bicycle Thief in 1948, but with an even more powerful ending. Although, quote-unquote, talkies had reached Japan by 1935, Ozu, like Chaplin, held out for silence, but he couldn't stop the studio from adding music. His subsequent films were all talkies. During the war, Ozu only made two films, Brothers and Sisters of the Toda Family in 1941 and There Was a Father in 1942, the latter of which won second prize at the Kinema Jumpo, which uh, made money at the box office and became one of Japan's most treasured cinema classics. After the war, Ozu, no war criminal, allegedly, was placed in a British POW camp near Singapore for six months where he cultivated his love for poetry whilst doing the dishes and cleaning toilets. In February 1946, he returned to war-damaged Tokyo and set about trying to make more films. Ozu's later, more refined style had been gradually percolating throughout the 1940s and late spring in 1949 became the first and finest telling of a story Ozu was to remake with variations many times. A young woman who lives happily with her widowed father will not consider marriage, preferring her state of comfortable dependence to the responsibilities of childbearing and household duties. The father, afraid that she will live a lonely and barren life, leads her to believe that he intends to remarry in order to free her. A dispassionate observation of the character's environment and emotions, Late Spring was one of Ozu's own favourites, along there with There Was a Father and Tokyo Story. As the 1940s came to an end, Ozu began to fuse his early American influences with an overriding desire to reduce his techniques. In later films, he reduced all camera movements, pans, dollying, and crabbing to nothing. He disregarded classical Hollywood cinema conventions such as 180-degree rule, where a camera always remains on one side of an imaginary axis between two talking actors, and replaced it with what critics have called the 360 rule, because Ozu crosses the axis. And he replaced traditional shot-reverse shot techniques with a system whereby each character looks straight into the camera when speaking to someone else. This had the unusual effect of placing the viewer directly in the centre of conversations, as if being talked to, instead of the Hollywood convention of alternatively hearing over characters' shoulders during such sequences. Furthermore, Ozu decided to reduce his choice of transition effects, gone with the fades, wipes, dissolves, all replaced with a straight cut. Reducing his techniques in this way focused all the tension on his characters, and their humanity shines through. 
Ozu went further than limiting his vocabulary of film punctuation. He also sought to de-emphasize his films as plot, the direct opposite of what Hollywood cinema was doing at the time. He worked out the entire script, dialogue, and camera positions himself before he was shooting. Ozu regular Chishu Ryu recounts, quote, Mr. Ozu looked happiest when he was engaged in writing a scenario with Mr. Kobonada at the latter's cottage on the table of Nagano Prefecture. By the time he finished writing a script after about four months' effort, he had already made every image of in a shot so that he never changed the scenario after we went onto the set. The words were so polished that up that he would not allow us to make even a single mistake. End quote. In addition to being motionless in his later work, Ozu's camera from his early in his career was often placed at a very low level as if the viewer was sat cross-legged. It has been noted that this is the same level once it's on a tatami for a tea ceremony in a Japanese house, or while meditating, sitting in silence, observing, reaching meaning through extreme simplification. It is also the height that Ozu had to position his camera when making a film about children, and it said he liked to do so because that's why he stuck with it. Ozu clearly had many reasons for adopting such a low position for his camera, and it became one of the few facets that pared down technique that uh, like persisted through it. 1951's Early Summer is an extraordinary film about the lives of ordinary people, centering on a young woman who rebels against the wishes of her family by choosing her own husband. Through the tangential stories and brief moments, Ozu meticulously observes the lives of some 19 characters, expanding boundaries of the film's simple plot with elliptical narrative. The film is driven forward by not by its plot, but rather by Ozu's use of space, time, and constantly changing the rhythm of the action. The crown jewel in Ozu's career is widely regarded as Tokyo Story in 1953. It consistently makes all-time top lists all around the world amongst films like Citizen Kane, Rules of the Game, and Vertigo. It is Ozu's sad, simple story of a generational conflict where an elderly couple visit their busy, self-absorbed offspring in Tokyo to meet with indifference. This ingratitude only serves to reveal permanent emotional differences, which the parents gracefully accept and then return home. It is in Tokyo's story where Ozu reaches its zenith. Where Ozu reached, Ozu's form, his directive style, reaches its zenith. The apparent lack of plot, not of story, but of story events, is replaced by a series of moments which have a cumulative effect and of ellipses. David Dessa highlighted the different kind of ellipses in Tokyo's story, identifying them as follows, quote, Minor ellipses, notes the dropping of a minor plot point event. For example, a character discusses sending the parents on holiday and the next show shows the parents on holiday, also having eluded scenes where the parents are persuaded to go on holiday. Surprise ellipses can be demonstrated by Ozu preparing the viewer for a scene and then simply alighting the whole event for effect. A risky strategy as the greater the ellipsis the more alert the viewer must be. Finally, dramatic ellipsis is concerned when the off-screen occurrence of something dramatic which the viewer only hears about later. For example, the sudden illness of a mother that we only hear about secondhand. Ozu maintains the mood and tone without needing to portray the events that he is lighting, or omitting. Unlike classical Hollywood cinema, which would generally base itself around the things that Ozu leaves out. Indeed, the ellipses convolve and dictate the pace of the film. Ozu's examination of the slow fracturing of a Japanese family in Tokyo story is filmed with quiet resignation and never-ending acceptance in the realization that the tradition is subject of change. End quote. Early spring in 1956 is Ozu's longest film. In it, a young salaried office worker is bored with both his job and his wife. He has a small affair with the office flirt, 
He and his wife quarrel and eventually accepts the transfer to the country. Ozu said of the film, quote, Although I hadn't made a white-collar story for a long time, I wanted to show the life of a man with a job. His happiness over graduation and finally becoming a member of society, his hopes for the future gradually dissolving, his realising that, even though he had worked for years, he has accomplished nothing, end quote. Thirty years into his filmmaking career, Ozu was making films with, like Kurosawa's Ikiru in 1952, question the sense of spending your whole life working behind a desk, something that many of his audience must have been doing. In 1958, Ozu was, uh, was going to make a big leap into the world of colour filmmaking. Equinox Flower was another close examination of a family life presented for the viewpoint of the younger generation, focusing on a modern young woman who wishes to choose her own husband over her father's objections, so another remake. Ozu opens an age-old discussion on the respects for belief and the values of elders and the tensions born of youthful rebellion. As the father is slowly won over, the entire family is subjected to Ozu's teasing, irony, and loving detail. The colour enhances the tone of the mood of the film and showcases Yamamoto's famous beauty, uh, who's the lead actress. The film begins and ends cheekily on a railway, first with a warning sign, strong winds expected, finally with the train chugging away into a blissful autumn afternoon, everyone reconciled. All subsequent films were now to be in colour, none look more glorious than Floating Weeds in 1959, a remake of his earlier similarly titled film, this time photographed by Kazuo Migawa, one of Japan's greatest cinematographers, who has worked with very many famous Japanese directors of the time, including Akira Kurosawa. Ozu said, quote, About this time, CinemaScope was getting popular. I wanted to have nothing to do with it, and I consequently shot more close-ups and used shorter shots. <laughs> Donna Ritchie called Floating Weeds the most physically beautiful of all of Ozu's pictures. The author writes that Late Autumn is one of his personal favourites. A young woman living with her widowed mother uh, finds the thought of her mother's remarriage offensive. Neither wants to leave the other to marry or remarry, and one of them eventually does. Ozu works his magic for two hours and achieves a pitch at the end whereby the simplest little expression seems momentous and heartbreaking. Late Autumn contains some of the funniest moments to be seen in all of Ozu's work. Mariko Okada plays the feisty young friend of the daughter in an unusually forthright way for Ozu, a reflection of the modern Japanese women in the 60s. She cut through tradition, chastising the comic chorus of old rogues who are trying to sort out both women's futures and ensures a happy ending, proof that not all Ozu characters are meek and passive. Sadly, Ozu's last film, An Autumn Afternoon in 1962, was undoubtedly influenced by the death during the film of his own mother, which whom he had lived with all his life. It is a serene meditation on ageing and loneliness as well as a final display of Ozu's wicked humour. Having arranged the marriage of his only daughter, a widower becomes painfully aware of his advanced age and his isolation. Solace is sought in alcohol and drunken comradeship, camaraderie, which gives rise to the most funniest scenes in Ozu's later film. He then died, Ozu died a year later after its making, so it exists as his last thoughts on a recurring subject recalls late autumn and early spring. Literary, the Japanese title, Sama no Aji, which means the taste of mackerel. So to finish up, we're going to talk about Ozu's legacy, or at least how it's discussed in this article. Ozu's films represent a lifelong study of Japanese family and the changes that a family unit experiences. He brings in the humdrum world of the middle-class family and has been regarded as the most Japanese of all filmmakers, not just by Western critics, but also by his countrymen. 
However, this accolade led Ozu to be regarded as traditional and a social conservative by young filmmakers of the Japanese New Wave, such as Shohei Imamura, who had worked as an apprentice with Ozu. Like the children in Ozu's movie, movies, the young filmmakers rebelled against his old-fashioned acceptance of the way that they see life. Much has been written about the most Japanese filmmakers tag. Hasumi Shigehiko believed it showed a lack of understanding of his work. Hasumi wrote that Ozu chose a persistent approach towards films and its limits, liberating himself from the ambiguity of outlines, dampness, and shadows. He describes Ozu's filmmaking as preferring dry sunlight conditions as opposed to uh, Mizuguchi's fog or Kurosawa's rain, its sole purpose being to approach the dazzle of midsummer sunlight, something that Hasumi points out in many ways the opposite of those who have said he's very Japanese aesthetic sense. Remarkably, Ozu's films were rarely seen in the West in the, until the early 1970s. There had been a small tour of his films in the US in the 60s. His bare-bone narratives and idiosyncratic style never appealed to distributors at the time who apparently felt they were just too Japanese for Western audiences. These dist- distributors never accused Preston of being too French, for example, or any other foreign director or non-American director, and it seems that they were able to they were alone responsible for Ozu's delayed exposure to the West. Maybe they thought Ozu's themes and titles were too similar, and thus confusing? After all, most of Ozu's later work, the 50s and 60s, centered on the same motif, the marrying of a, of a loyal daughter so that she could begin her own life. When Ozu's films did start to get shown in the West, art cinema aficionados of Gresson, Bergman, and Antonioni's formal styles were ecstatic to find Japanese masters whose films spoke as eloquently about Japanese life as their favorite European films did of their respective homelands. There is an overwhelming sensibility running through all of Ozu's films that is a difficult to put into words. Words? <laughs> like I obviously can't this episode. But Donald Ritchie does well to describe it as, quote, a point of view of a sympathetic sadness, end quote. To expand upon this, the Japanese concept of mono no aware can be related to Ozu's sensibility and worldview. Mono no aware is the perspective of a tired, relaxed, and even disappointed observer, perhaps someone sagely approaching death. It is not limited to reflection on death, but touches on all aspects of life and nature, a pure emotional response to the beauty of nature, the impermanence of life, and the sorrow of death. The scholar Maturi Noringa, from 1730 to 1801, invented the unique concept of mono no aware to define the essence of Japanese culture. The phrase derives from aware, which means a sensitivity to things. He believed that the character of Japanese culture encompassed the capacity to experience the objective in a direct the objective world in a direct and immediate fashion. To understand sympathetically the objects in the natural world around one without resorting to language or other mediators. The concept became the central aesthetic concept in Japan, even into a modern period, allowing the Japanese to understand the world directly by identifying themselves with that world. Film director Kenji Mizoguchi said, quote, I portray what uh, should not be possible in the world as if it should be possible, but Ozu portrays what should be possible and as if it were possible that is much more difficult, end quote. Whilst in China during his war service, Ozu asked a Chinese monk to paint the character Mu for him, an abstract concept loosely meaning void or nothingness. Ozu died painfully on his 60th birthday in 1963 of cancer and on his tombstone in the temple of Engaku and Kita. Kamakura bears the inscription Mu, 
from the monk's painting that he had kept all his life. At the time of writing, which was in 2003, it is Ozu's centenary year, a wonderful opportunity for the world to look back on his films and for the young to see them for the first time. Celebrations, retrospectives, and brand new DVDs, <laughs> transfers, are appearing around the world and Ozu's legacy is becoming even more cherished with passing time. And it's even more so now, where uh, 20 years past 2003, so it's his 120th birthday this year, So, uh, and it is soon his birthday, December 12th, I think. So we can all celebrate Ozu in a very special way at that time. It's been so fantastic to get to learn about how he sort of challenged cinema in a way, like reducing as much as you possibly can to still tell such a poignant and deliberate story with very little going on. I love these sort of slice of life kind of films with not a lot happening. It's just kind of an examination of a thing that's happening to someone. And I think that Ozu does this very well. So it's been very interesting to learn about. And I hope that you listener have enjoyed learning about him as well and hopefully feel kind of inspired to go see some of his uh, his more famous works and then maybe get some deeper cuts. This has been a very nice episode. Nice to ease back in. We've got some big things coming up for the month of November. So keep an eye out. Definitely. Uh, this is coming out on Halloween, I think. So happy Halloween. Be safe. And thank you for listening. This has been The Real Thing. I've been Joel Lawrence. Thank you. Goodbye. This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pierre Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilfgeibern and Mamina Nazmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.